I guess my relationship to those moments have been strange in that I, I've always found them sort of romantic. You know, you don't get those moments without the pain, the, the, the truly transformative moments. So if you're paying the dues of suffering, then you're about to reach something that, you know, very few get to reach, which is an insight if you're open to it, that you're paying for with the suffering. And that insight might be one of the most important things that you'll have in your life. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Our learned barriers are entirely in your mind. You choose to either accept these barriers or you can have the guts to dance, to tango with the unknown, to take that first step and see what unfolds. I think that is what being an explorer is all about. That's a quote from today's guest, Dr. Albert Lin. Dr. Lin is an award-winning scientist, technologist, explorer, and storyteller, both on stage and the big screen. His work to reinvent how we explore has made headlines around the world, merging adventure with innovation. Our conversation today traverses his early days while living in his car, planning an expedition to find Genghis Khan's tomb, to an accident that took his leg, leading down a rabbit hole of brain rewiring exploration to rid himself of that phantom limb pain. That's the science of neuroplasticity, which we do get into, including his experiment with 10,000 students at a commencement speech. Along the way, we learn a lesson or two as we go behind the scenes on some of his adventures through Mongolia, Guatemala, India, and even the inside of a wave barreling into the shore somewhere on the Pacific. This is the No Barriers Podcast. I'm the producer, Diedrich Jonk, and I do hope you enjoy this episode, hosted by Eric Weinmayer and Tom Lillig with guest Dr. Albert Lin. Off we go. Hey everyone, welcome to No Barriers. My guest host, Tom Lillick. Man, awesome to hear your voice, Tom. Take a little time out of your busy schedule running Stoneward, an amazing marketing company, to join us. You're on the board of No Barriers as well, so great to have you. This is a good opportunity to catch up with you, too. Great to be here, Eric, and so excited about our guest today. Yeah, Albert, man, so cool to meet you. I mean, uh, and, and hang with you. We met uh, in California, what, was it a couple months ago now? Yeah, in some of the most intense uh conditions possible which is to be in the center of a hollywood debut (laughs) yeah at the premiere of welcome to earth man that was cool that was rad man i step into that world see albert i'm kind of like a dirtbag right like i grovel in the mud and and then every now and i step into like a four seasons and and hang out with uh you and will smith but it's sort of a split (laughs) personality sometimes to step into that world and go whoa this is pretty wild (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel the same way. I don't, you know, I, 
every once in a while, I find myself, if you linked an expedition with an event where you're promoting something, it's like you, you're packing your hiking boots and your gaiters and your machete. And at the same time, you're packing your, you know, your tux. It's like, yeah. what? what world are we living in? But it's super fun. It makes you feel kind of like a little James Bond, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was wild. And then we took a ton of photos and, uh, hung out with all the, all these folks. And it's just, it was Hollywood's a scene. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for another episode. Um, but so, so on welcome to earth, you did a really cool adventure with Will that we'll just start with. And that was in Namibia, right? And you guys, I remember you telling this story and, uh, I think it's in the episode where you guys do this Tyrolean traverse across this Canyon and it's wild. That's so cool. I've done a bunch of Tyrolean traverses, uh, but never quite in the way you guys did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. You know, using a drone to try to yeah. get a lead line around a big boabab tree and then and yeah. then pull it Which looks like, like a Dr. Seuss kind of tree, right, if I remember? Yeah, actually, it's the tree from, what is that book way back in the day? Uh, uh, was it The Little Prince? Or I can't remember. It was something. Yeah, Little Prince. Yeah, yeah, the Boabab. Uh, it's this wild, ancient, huge yeah. tree. And was uh, it like over like a crocodile river? And so, yeah, set it up for everyone just to kind of set up your badassness. badassness. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it was, well, I, I mean, I guess it is kind of crazy. You know, you think about it. So you're, you're in Africa. You're, well, we're in Namibia, in the Namib Desert. And then all of a sudden we drive up to this area where there's this river that's got the basically the largest crocodile population in Africa. And it's, it's a place where there's, I think, uh, an attack every week, basically, you know, the week uh, on local farmers yeah. or you know, people that show up because there's nobody really there. I mean, you're We're really, not promoting tourism to the area yeah, right now. Not a, it's beautiful though. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, if you're, if you're up for a little crocodile experience, it's beautiful. But then we're trying to get this sense of how the river flows and carves away the stone over time. And the only really like up close view of this one waterfall that carves away the stone in this beautiful pattern is at the center of this little inlet, this is isle, almost island at the, the heart of this river in the, in the midst of this roaring rapids all around it. Uh, and so to get there, you know, you gotta you gotta think outside the box, and um, you know, we we saw that baobab tree, and we're like, well, let's fly a line around it, and then try to pull this climbing rope across and get across. I've never done anything with a drone to try to fly uh, a lead line around, but I did spend a lot of time climbing when I was uh, in my younger days. So uh, you know, doing traverses and things like this has been not not as intense as what you've done, Eric, but it's been a part of my life leading hmm. uh, up to. So just so right. people can visualize it, like you're you're flying a drone with a rope, and if you fly the drone around the baobab tree, and then the drone flies back to you, and you and that's the way you connect the rope across this crazy canyon, and you hope yeah. because you are not on the other side, you hope that that tree is incredibly strong enough to be able to tension that rope. And then, you know, hang your body weight as you slide across the canyon with crocodiles below you. Sounds fun, yeah, the, man. The, I wish the I was tree, there. The tree is huge. The tree is massive. So, okay. you know, you get a sense for that it's it's not going anywhere. Okay. It's actually, baobabs, I think, are the, some of the oldest flowering trees 
on planet Earth in terms of how old they can, you know, uh, grow and how big they can get. So, th so it's solid. And, you know, I've definitely been in other situations where you, in a pinch, have to bail on a climb and you rappel off of something far more sketchy, uh -huh. uh, which you do, right? But uh, so it felt it felt pretty good. But it was it was seeing Will's kind of, you know, anticipation in the moment that uh, that almost made me scared because he was a little scared, you know. But uh, but I think it was also all the buildup of all this information about how many crocodiles were I'd be scared us. any human being would be scared <laughs> Just, I don't know I think you I think you're pretty fearless Eric I don't think you'd be scared I think you'd be making some subtle joke oh uh, sure of course so that would be that would be covering up my fear <laughs> <laughs> well it was awesome the, the whole journey through Africa with Will was about time and it was about how time uh you know is is sort of taking place all around us and things are changing in scales of time that are beyond our perception. And that actually the way that all the things exist is either, you know, happening very, very quickly or very, very slowly. And we only get this little narrow window in between all of that, uh, that we perceived as how things are moving and changing, but actually the dynamic world that we're in is happening at much different rates all around us. So the, the river was one scene, but we were also able to repel into the midst of this huge underground cave and look at, you know, this, uh, these stalactites that had been submerged in this underground cavern that ended up being this massive underground lake uh, because of the way in which the water table had changed over time. So it, it was just, you know, it was like a, it was literally a journey through time, but with the fresh prints. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so cool. Now, I saw I, one of the things I did to research was to check out a ton of links and stuff. And man, you had a wild commencement talk to, uh, in San Diego. Uh, wait, I don't I can't remember what college it was, but w that was you playing the guitar, right? In the commencement. That <laughs> yeah. was so cool, dude. I was like, wow, wow is he playing the guitar? I had to run and ask a sighted friend whether you were <laughs> playing that guitar. You're really talented. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was... Yeah, I, I got lucky. I don't know how that... That was a moment... Uh, yeah, so a couple Everyone of years ago... Everyone go check out Albert's commencement talk. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was asked to give the commencement speech at UC San Diego. Uh, and I have a link to it on my Instagram uh, on Explore Albert. But it was... I didn't know what I was going to say. You know, I mean, what do you say that hasn't already been said? Um, and, and then... Bef right before that, you know, I, I was really thinking about it. It's like, what, what is it about the different moments and the different sort of ceremonies that we go through that change us? And I think that for me, this, this journey comes back to my own accident, right? So I, I went through a moment of transformation where I lost my leg in a car accident. And in the moments afterwards, in the months and years afterwards, I thought a lot about, you know, how to sort of shift my mind because I was holding on to certain both physical and mental traumas. And it was taking place in the form of the most visceral thing, which was phantom limb pain. So I was starting to feel yeah. this extreme excruciating right. pain part of my body that didn't exist anymore. So I got really into the science of neuroplasticity and how to sort of rewire your brain. And I started traveling to all these different parts of the world where you know, where there was examples of that in culture. So, for example, I went to Varanasi, India, where 
the whole city is built on the on the Ganges River, and it's built as as a technology uh, to sort of get people to grapple with the death of a loved one. So that's where the bodies are burnt, and you know, and it, supposedly if your body is burnt there within a week, then you skip, re, you know, your reincarnation goes straight to Nirvana. So people have built this entire ecosystem of ritual around the importance of basically transition, right? And and really, if you've spent a lot of time around death, it's it's the 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 ceremonies are more about what the survivors take away from it, right? But Albert, so, let me interrupt because, like, just because because it's it's so fascinating. Just to pause for a moment here, because so so you're first of all, you have a PhD, you're a doctor, you've gone around the world studying cultures and looking at ancient cities and looking at rituals and ceremonies of like indigenous cultures and how the world changes and evolves and how we move through the world in terms of quote unquote progress. Um, and then this thing happens to you, which is you're in a car accident and you lose your leg. I mean, so looking back, it's, it's, it's sort of crazy. It, it almost like felt to me like maybe it's like your own personal chance of feeling these things you've been studying most of your career. Oh yeah. It, it couldn't be, it couldn't have been more visceral than having to then employ all of your own, you know. Okay. So there's a moment where I lost my leg and the first day I started to feel the phantom limb pain, I'd sort of, I'd sort of done some research in the, in the month in the hospital about what to avoid phantom limb and all this other stuff. Right. So my friends all happened to be, you know, the doctors that were, uh, that were attending to me because we're all in the same university and, you know, I, I've had a pretty multidisciplinary career. So some of my friends were doing research on things like the front, the front edge of depression research, which has looked at things like ketamine as a, single moment to induce a neuroplastic state that would allow you to sort of rewrite your narrative and yes. reset, right? So when they operated on my leg, my my friends who were my pain docs, basically I, I told them that I wanted to try this approach. They they put me into a ketamine coma, basically. Uh, right. So I went into the most psychedelic journey ever to have my leg amputated. I had a friend who got hurt in, in, in Iraq and he said the same thing when he was just laying there in the hospital, completely like burned the crap out of him. You know, he's, and he, and he was on ketamine. He said he was seeing some wild visions. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, really some of the most incredible things I've ever spiritually taken away in life have come from these altered states yeah. that, that were all kind of brought around these one moments. My journey started off in engineering. I, I got a PhD in engineering and then I applied engineering to try to understand more about human culture. So there was a time when I was, you know, starting off, I'd just gotten this degree in engineering and I sold everything I had. I moved into my car and I basically gave myself a year to raise money to try to, to be an explorer and try to, and the first project was to try to find Genghis Khan's tomb uh, in Mongolia. And I got, I mean, it was sounded ridiculous, but eventually I got somehow into Nat Geo's sphere and got my first little bit of funding and started leading these teams into the remote mountains of Mongolia. But along the way, I was, you know, just to get access to some of these places, I was in, encountering cultures that that were about ceremony and tradition and ritual. And some of these things 
like to be able to access this one mountain, I had to meet with the shaman who beat this drum until he went into this trance state. And then right in front of me, you know, his entire being sort of shifted uh, in terms of his own mind. And he was able to go into this completely altered state just from beating this drum into this rhythm. When I lost my leg and I started experimenting with different ways of trying to get to that same trance state to try to rewire my brain, it was because of the research that was being led on psychedelics and neuroplasticity in the fields of depression. So right now at Johns Hopkins, uh, there is these trials that have been sort of pioneering the way where they've been looking at, well, you know, what happens to the brain under, let's say, a hero dose of psilocybin. But what ends up happening is you have all of these increases of neuroplastic connections across regions of the brain that aren't really talking anymore. And you get this suppression of the default mode, which is the which is defined as basically every time your synapse fires or one of them fires, it's easier for it to fire again. So over time, from your childhood to your adulthood, what started out as kind of a blank canvas gets more and more embedded as these sort of trodden paths. And that's your default mode. And in a way, that's why like- It's like you your drive, default consciousness, right? And you just, yeah, you kind of yeah. almost get lazy and, and, and bored or something or, or just stuck in that one thing. That one totally. way of seeing the world through that lens. One way of seeing the world. Yeah, yeah. one way okay. of seeing the world. So, so when, uh, when they showed that all of a sudden you could sort of suppress that and then rewrite a bunch of those pathways in the case of depression, I was facing something where I'm like, okay, my brain isn't letting go of this pain. It's coming at me in a part of my body that I cannot treat with anything physical because there's nothing there. It's literally the air, right? It's like the air around me. Uh, what am I going to do? So... Like everything else in my career, which has been multidisciplinary, I looked around at what the science was, and I met this neuroscientist named uh, V.S. Ramachandran. I don't know if you've heard of him before, but he he's kind of like a leader in the field. He's, he's like the Albert Einstein of neuroscience of our time. Hmm. But he happened to be in San Diego, and he discovered this thing where you could put a mirror between two parts of your body, and you could see the reflection of your remaining limb, and you could trick your brain into letting go of the phantom pain by by creating this this almost this 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 story for your brain to grapple with to hold on to where you can let go of let's say you're missing your hand and your hand's gone and you're and the feeling is usually like a clenched fist that's or like you know some kind of like moment where you're just like holding on to the pain right if you can see a reflection in a mirror of your other hand and then sort of release the pain with your with this trick this visual trick then maybe your brain will hold on to the new story that says there's no pain there. Is it a reflection of the missing hand or a reflection of the hand that you have or in your case, the leg that you have? Yeah. It's a reflection of the hand that you have to make it look like your missing hand has come back. I see. To yourself. Right. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know, as a kid, I used to stand like in a mirror like this and then stick one leg up and pretend like I was flying. You know, I don't know. (laughs) Um, It's kind of like that. But Every time he would remove the mirror, the pain would come rushing back. So what that told me was that, okay, I can see the story, but my brain won't hold on to it, right? Uh, so it's like my brain is, my brain is the minute the story is gone, is referring back to the default mode. So then I started looking at all the research that was around. It was like, okay, well, maybe I need to enter this state of neuroplasticity. So we started looking at things like Kundalini yoga or meditation or, you know, breathing meditations or 
you know, and I started getting really into the sort of science of culture, cultural pathways to a state of neuroplasticity. And that's why I ended up in Varanasi, India, because... All right, now we're back to Varanasi, India. This is awesome. Because you, you get to this place where you're, you're, you've built an entire set of rituals and architectures and customs and traditions and a field that has been designed to help people let go of something, right? right. Uh, and and it's, it's a place where you're so overwhelmed by the sensation of being there that you literally are like, you're letting go of your own ego. And that's the, and that's the moment where you can sort of write new narratives, right? Mm. It also happens from surf, like, like for me, from, from surfing, right? So when I'm dropping in on a big wave, it's, you can't even react. There's, there's so much that is, is about instinct that you almost, you almost lose yourself. It's like an out-of-body experience. I'm sure you've felt that before in your journey. Yeah, and- I mean, I was at the gym the other day because I've been really fascinated, Albert, by this inner journey. I mean, you've done huge physical things. I've done some big physical things. But I've, the last half of my life, I've been really more fascinated by this inner stuff you're talking about. And but So I w- I've been thinking a lot and reflecting a lot. And I was at the climbing gym the other day. And I was like, God, this is like the most beautiful, almost the most happy state I'm in when I'm just climbing up a wall, reaching for the next hold, feeling this like, I don't know, kind of like a flow of beauty, a simplicity, you know, of being fully here. And I was like, God, I, you know, it'd be great to be able to feel that all the time. So anyway, I'm just connecting to what you're talking about. I really love, Albert, that you had this multi multidisciplinary career. You became this explorer and then it seemed like the accident sort of ignited this exploration into oneself and exploration into how ultimately do I want to live this life, this new life, and find this joy in this life. And you have this amazing quote that I heard on one of your videos. You said, and this is why, like, I want to put make a No Barriers poster with you on it and put it up and every member of our, of our house, every member of our organization in their houses. You said, I learned barriers are entirely in your mind. You choose to either accept these barriers or you can have the guts to dance, to tango with the unknown, to take that first step and see what unfolds. I think that's what being an explorer is all about. I'm wondering, were you able to get to that realization prior to the accident or was it only after the accident and your journey into self that sort of brought you to that point? You know, I, I, th- you know, I think it's, I'm very lucky that I had a couple of parents that were very passion driven. Uh, and when I left the house, you know, like for, for my, my family, everybody who turned 18, that we didn't get fancy clothes or fancy cars, but we got a plane ticket to anywhere in the world when we wow. turned 18. It's such a great idea. And, and that was, you know, like, okay, go. I mean, it, was, it must be, as a father now, it must be terrifying to send your kid off and you know, like, where, like, just go, you know? Um, and so from an early part of my life, it was always about the unknown. My father was an astrophysicist. My mother is a musician, actress. And so you know, they were always just thinking about the sort of, like my, my father was always surrounded by people just literally thinking about the universe, right? So, so everything was always about the frontier. And then, you know, I think when I, when I really felt it first was when we started to do this Genghis Khan project. It was just my friends and I. 
uh, and you know, living on couches, literally with no associations to any major organization whatsoever, just sort of piecing the thing together bit by bit. And there was a moment when, um, when we had raised a little bit of funds and I brought the whole team out to Mongolia and we're supposed to go into the field. But before that, we're supposed to like all, as I'm flying into Mongolia, all my contacts are sort of saying that like everything's falling apart basically in Mongolia, like, all the groundwork that I had done in the month leading up to build the collaborations that would allow us to go to this place. We're all basically saying that we did, that we were amateurs, that we didn't have enough funding and we didn't know what we were doing and, you know, all this stuff. And it's sort of true. I don't want to say that out loud, but it was very true. <laughs> and I remember getting there and being like, okay, what's going to happen now? We can either give up and go home and that's it. I'm not, I will never be an explorer. That's it. That was my one shot. Or figure out how to judo move all these barriers is what we basically came up with and, and just keep our eye on the goal. And, um, and so we go into this meeting and this guy, like the first meeting, the guy literally, he throws his tea on the ground and says, you have no business being here and walks out. We reset in this little bar, my friends and I, which were all, they were all rock climbers, right? So, and we had all been in the mountains together. We had some, one of them I had climbed El Cap with, like we were all climbers. So it was all about like, you know, problem solving. And we decided that we were going to approach the next meeting where every time something was said that was going to stop us, like whether like, you can't do this because you would just sort of judo move around it. We wouldn't even answer it directly. We'd just say, Oh, but da, 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 and then talk about something really, really positive. And then just keep on like shifting it to a positive story. And it, I, I can never forget that one moment where we're sitting in the bar, we make the decision to do that tactic. Then another couple of meetings go by and a couple of days later, we're loading up the trucks and going into a place that's been forbidden to go to for 800 years, right? Like we had, we had literally just chosen to not confront this negative energy, but rather move around it, like just judo move around it. Uh, and, and that got us, you know, into the unknown. And for me, that was probably the start of it. When I lost my leg, you know, as, a, as years later, I was super lucky to be also surrounded with really incredible friends. Um, and I think that, you know, no person's story is, is done in isolation, really. It's about the love and support of the friends around you. And again, these friends helped me see that, you know, there was, there was ways to judo move the challenges, right? Uh, the barriers, so to say, right? And I remember one friend, I'm sitting there and facing, you know, doubt. What am I going to do? And one friend finds this prosthetic clinic that looked like, I don't know, like a, like a CrossFit gym, right? It was like, man, that looks cool. Uh, you know, it's not like what you think of in your head when you think of getting a prosthetic. It's like, this looks like, this looks like, a, a, you know, it looked, it looked awesome. Uh, and so I, I went there and I started seeing all these people around me doing incredible things. You know, I'm going to the Paralympics um, or, or, you know, choosing to live the life they want. Another friend showed me this picture of this guy surfing this huge barrel wave, right? Hmm. Uh, my, who's now, this guy's now my friend, and I'm actually now in the process of a quest with him and with the community of friends I have around me now uh, to try to do the same thing, to be inside that barrel wave. But, you know, I feel like my, my experience has been that you can basically 
dream up anything and then it becomes real. And it became very real for me when I was able to let go of the pain because the pain I was dreaming up. I mean, it wasn't in a part of my body that even was physically there anymore, but it was so real. And then if I could get my mind to let go and truly believe that the pain was gone and really hold on to that belief, then I was able to create that new reality. And so it was like it was like bending the spoon, you know, in the matrix. Like if you believe the spoon can bend, then it's going to bend. If you believe that there's a barrier there, the barrier is going to stop you. But if you believe that there isn't a barrier there, then you're going to get through it. And that goes all the way back to that, you know, graduation speech that you brought up, right? So I'm sitting there trying to figure out what I'm going to say. And I'm like, well, instead of just saying it, let me try to put everybody into this neuroplastic state. I'm just going to do what I'm saying, right? So if that is a, if that is a moment where there's a tradition and a ceremony and a, and a, and a thing to yeah. uh, get people to shift their minds, then I've got to put my mouth, money where my mouth is. If, 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 if those ceremonies are to get you to those neuroplastic states the same way that I tried to get to my neuroplastic state to let go of the phantom limb pain, and now these kids are graduating and they're being told, okay, now you've literally transformed into this moment, uh, and now you're supposed to go and you know seize your own life, then I need to put everybody into that, that ego death place, mm. right? So I just picked up my guitar and I didn't even plan what I was going to say. And I just tried to feel, you know, this epic vibe of 10,000 people in front of me. It was great. Yeah. I, I felt like the trance came over and the images of the kids smiling. You, yeah, had you explained it so well because that's right, Tom. Yeah, I felt yeah. that too. You know, like yeah. it, it was like words, but it was more about the experience, about the ceremony of what you were launching people into. Absolutely. Um, so, know, I, so, so now you're remapping the brain. You're trying to see that new future, um, dream that new future. You got to take us back to India because you never finished. We keep interrupting you and you never finished the, your, your journey on that, on that path. Well, that was, that was wild. <laughs> you know, I've, I've found that my leg has been uh, an incredible asset. It It's, it, it's just it's it's here yeah, i'm holding it up right now it's carbon fiber and you know i'm so lucky and got like this titanium rod and it's got this little thing it's so i'm so grateful to have this and i know that there's privilege in this i know that a lot of people don't have access to prosthetics but when i walk around now i always kind of walk around with shorts as even if it's frigid outside because uh because I feel like it's like a home field advantage because it's so dismantling to anybody's preconceived notions yeah. of what, the, you know, you walk up and you're like, oh, and then you've got the home, you know, you immediately have the home field advantage. <laughs> but uh, I was out in India and uh, I was at this place where it's right at the heart of everything, uh, where the, it's called the burning gut. But that's basically, this, it all focuses down on this one small riverbank. You come, you you arrive into the city, and it's like the, the just the noise and the sounds and the smells just start growing and growing, and growing until you've never really. I've never been in a place with as many people, cows, horses, moving parts, vehicles, all condensing these narrower and narrower streets, all into this one heart. And that heart in the very center of this city is on this river, and right at that heart, there is just these eternal flames of burning bodies. And there's this one flame that's the flame of Shiva, and it's just burning. They say it's been burning for, for 700 years, the same flame. And it's just been going and going and going and going. Uh, and it's 
and it, and this is the flame that they light all the all the pyres with. Mm. Stacks of wood all around you. So I go to this place. I just want to know. And and when you stand there, you feel you can feel the heat of the flames. And it's not. And you see the bodies burning. And it's not like you're. It's, I mean, it, it's a totally different thing than than I think I was expecting. I've seen dead bodies in my life before, and, and I've held lots of skeletons on my, you know, on my journeys into tombs and things like this. But I, I it felt very different because nobody's crying. It's just this low sort of hum of of release, and uh, and punctuated by these drums all the time. These drums beating like like clockwork. Yeah, uh, and, and you know. And these ceremonies and drums and drums and drums and drums. So I'm sitting there watching this thing, and uh, and some guy comes up to you know I mean there's there's kids flying kites, there's cows taking a poop, everything's all around the same spot, right? Like there's no, it's not like a, the way you would think of a, a sort of solemn ceremony here. There's literally life happening all around at the same exact moment, right? And then guy comes up and he and he wants to, you know, he, he's he's kind of messing with me a little bit, right? You know, he's like, what are you doing here? And he's just trying to poke at me a little bit, see what I'm doing there. And then all of a sudden he sees my leg and he's like, oh, oh okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> and he backs off. And then he and I, you know, like a little bit later, I'm like, he comes back and he's talking to me about my life and everything. I'm like, look, I'm here to try to find, I want to know more about the ceremonies or release. And he's, he's actually this, uh, they call him Baba Lutlo, which Baba is like the guru, and Lutlo means the thief. He's he's like a, he's like the leader of this gang, basically mm. on this this one small town, right? Yeah. And his whole crew—they're all young guys. They're all kind of like, you know, like this this street crew, right? Uh, we become friends, and he starts taking me to all these different ceremonies where, you know, like down in these these temples underground. Deep inside the heart of this city, where nobody, you know, really even knows there's something going on. There's, you know, a guy beating a drum into this trance state, and he's, you know, sort of worshiping this Shiva, which is like sort of the god of death and creation. So the rebirth right. thing, right, over and over again. And he's taking me all through this place, and the whole time he's sort of telling me about the story of this city, which is a city built. You know, they say it's the longest inhabited city in, you know, in human history. I don't know exactly if that's true or not, but they say that. And, he, and he's telling me about this, this sort of role of death and rebirth and, you know, about karma and all these different things. And I'm learning more and more from this guy who's essentially a street thief, but he's taking me to all these different gurus to experience these different ceremonies. He takes me down into this one ceremonial temple and there's a guy, it's a super old ancient guru who's who's been doing this for his whole life. And he's bouncing around on one leg, beating this drum the whole time, worshiping the God of death and rebirth and, you know, and the sound of Om. And I, and I go and I like halfway through this, I'm like, why is that guy just standing on one leg mm -hmm. only on his left leg? And I will go and I ask him afterwards through Baba Lutlo. And he says, that's his pathway to meditation. That's how he enters his, his state of neuroplasticity mm -hmm. by choosing to stand only on his left leg. Which happens to be my only remaining leg, my <laughs> biological leg. So I'm like, wild. Oh, yeah, this guy chose. But what I realized in that whole journey was that it, it's not like if, if you think about your life, you have many different chapters of your life. And each chapter is like a, an entire life. And then it dies. And if you're able to let go of that chapter, you can accept the new chapter. 
you truly transition into something new. So each one of those chapters makes up the whole of your life. But actually, you go through many death and rebirth cycles in a single lifetime. And this guy, Baba Lutlo, you know, it's like he's one version of himself. Maybe he'll be something else later and all these other things. But my understanding from that experience is that, in fact, it's not about being one way. It's about experiencing the breadth of the human journey, the breadth of the human condition, and going through all those de- death and rebirth cycles that allow you to sort of see the whole of what it means to be yourself. And you know whether you're starting off as the guru or you're starting off as the thief or the order, it doesn't really matter. But it's about choosing to allow yourself to let go of something mm. that allows you to be born into something new. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So you were able to get rid of the pain, the phantom pain. But it sounds like you're talking about something way bigger just than letting go of pain. Oh, yeah. I, well, look, I think that I'm talking about letting, letting yourself go and not hold on to the expectations of permanence, right? Like, yeah. it's like if, if anybody who's gone through a major life change, right. like you yeah. uh, or me or all of us, everybody's done that at some point, you find this moment where you, you're, you're sort of mourning the loss of who you were before. Uh, and that's okay. That's totally okay. But you have to, you have to truly accept that and almost embrace and succumb to that loss and let go of holding on to the resistance of trying to keep who you were before mm-hmm. to be able to accept the new. And that has to do with this, that so much has to do with the ceremonies that I experienced in Varanasi because these people were like, okay, we're letting go of somebody. We're literally letting go of our loved ones. Um, and so we're burning their bodies at the mm. banks of the river to let them become something else and to let ourselves become something else. And so what I guess I'm talking about was I was on, a, I was maybe a year after I lost my leg when I went to Varanasi and, uh, and I was truly grappling with, I think, trying to understand what transformation meant, right. what impermanence really was and, you know, the different chapters of who we become through time. And, and is it, um, you, so you're talking about what happened to, to, to you, to me, to, to all of us, right? In terms of not trying to move into a new person. But is it also about letting go of things? Like, you know, we all, you live long enough and we all have like, like I was such a jerk when I was a kid. You know, I, 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 I wasn't the best version of myself. I might've hurt people in my life. So that builds up a lot of shame and guilt and, and, and sort of, I don't know, trauma that kind of holds you from, becoming uh at peace do you think it also applies to people who have had that kind of ptsd type experience i I think it totally does uh you know forgiveness of others and forgiveness of the self is a big part of letting go and transitioning into a new life right within your own life and i think that it's it's so important i was just told by a friend this very close friend of mine this story where they went um and uh, went to this sort of ceremony in the, in the jungles. And uh, they were there with a group of other friends. And one was a, a mother and, and her daughter who had experienced a bunch of trauma together in their family, mm. uh, you know, uh, inflicted upon by their, you know, basically by an abusive father. Right. And, and, and in this moment, like, they, they were able to release themselves and not only forgive him, but forgive themselves of to each other of having, you know, sort of held that space for that. And, and then move through it in this way that was allowing them to become something new, Mm -hmm. but it had to do with 
they, they literally had to get to a place where they can lose themselves and lose, like literally go out of their own bodies to be able to let go of the, the rigidity of their narratives that we've created. Right. In Which are so locked. I mean, they feel so much like reality. So, well, they are reality. So because, but you have many realities. So they're one reality and there's an infinite filing cabinet of different realities. And that's what I'm saying is that like, I have very real, 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 real pain, right. pain that was totally uh, uh, debilitating. I could, I was, I was, I couldn't live life with that amount of pain, and so I, I had to find a way, and I found a way. But I'm lucky that I found a way. But it was, it was about believing, and literally just in the mind, believing that the pain wasn't there, and then I was able to write this new story that is now also very real. Both stories were real. The only thing that shifted was. A perspective, yeah. right? Like both stories were totally real, but I was able to see something that I didn't see before and then believe it. And I think, you know, have you heard of, like, there's a, there's a form of meditation that's pretty, you know, a silent meditation that people do for seven days. Yeah. And, I've thought I might go crazy if I tried one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had a couple of, I haven't done it, but a couple of friends have done this and um, they talk about like somewhere between day and this this is a meditation where you're completely silent. You're not making eye contact with anybody. You're not you're not allowed to read anything. You're not no information's coming in. You're completely inside yourself. There's no information coming in. And they describe going into memories that they've long forgotten, you know, and going through the banks of these deeper memories that have sort of been hidden behind different levels. Yes. Of, you know. And then they talk, they talk about this this sort of shift somewhere in day three or four where they go from ex extreme happiness to extreme sadness and extreme happiness to extreme sadness. And they go from like euf total euphoria to complete depression. And then they go back to euphoria. And, and it, to me, that was like, Hey, you know, literally nothing has externally changed. There's not been any input from the outside. And yet their, their feelings and their relationship to reality has been something that has gone through these radical shifts. Mm. Uh, and, and I think we all kind of instinctually know that our state of being comes from within. Yes. And it's just a matter of, like, I guess, observing it like a scientist that allows right. us to try to actuate that within ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. if, you, if you can observe that and see it and then sort of detach yourself in a way that allows you to say, hey, maybe I can try this, then, uh, then you can pick a different filing cabinet, right? Now, you went through that experience and then you go back into the real world. And it's not like you go like live the rest of your life in a cave, right? You go back into the real world. You're a personality. You're in the real, you're on TV. You have a successful show, National Geographic adventure, speaking in front of groups all the time. So how did that change you in terms of moving back into the world? Because you got to bring it. You got to bring this big personality to the table. But if you felt your ego kind of die and, come, you know, how do, how do you wrestle with that? Uh, you know, I, we all have e ego and I think of ego in the term, not of like, Oh, I'm like egotistical right, or whatever. Exactly. It's, more like, it's more like my, my default mode, how I see the world and how I perceive my role in the world is my ego. Right. And once one version of it is, is dead and I've let go of it, I'm entering into a new one. So like from my childhood into my, early adulthood or, you know, when I, when I was married and then I had a divorce, like the, the different versions of me at these different places were very real different versions of myself driven by my perception of myself to the world. 
And now, you know, I've gone through this journey where I've, I've experienced that in a very physical way. And I think when, when I was like right off the bat, I was super lucky that I was surrounded by incredible friends. And also like, I got to give a lot of credit out to Nat Geo because they didn't balk at the idea of uh, me testing my own limits on their dime. Mm -hmm. But they, they said, okay, uh, well, you know, it was like six months after my accident. And they said I had already been building this project where we were trying to use, you know, a lot of technologies in the jungles of Guatemala to try to find these Mayan ruins that, that were hidden within the jungles. And so my friend had just commissioned this huge collection of LIDAR data, which is laser mapping through the trees. And you can digitally delete the trees. So Amazing. naturally, there was a moment when the first expeditions were about to be launched to try to ground truth what we thought were all these hidden lost cities out in the jungles. And Nat Geo was like, okay, well, you know, they didn't even ask. They just said, like, in terms of, like, it's, how, how do you feel? They're just like, do you want to go, right? And, uh, and of course I wanted to go. Of course. Right? Well, I get helicoptered in uh, to my friend's archaeological site, and we pull out some machetes. And I and I my my new thing was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to walk, you know, twenty thirty miles through the jungle with my prosthetic leg. I'd never done it before, so I, I brought uh, little walking sticks. And, and by the um, way, FYI, I mean I'm stating I'm preaching to the choir because we work with a lot of amputees, and when it gets hot like that, and the the temperature changes, it gets all hot and steamy. Your your the, the the your stump like changes shape and it shrinks or expands and man it is a freaking nightmare. Yeah, it's, it, it, there's a lot there's a lot of uh, problem solving. Yeah, I would say. But I'm uh, I'm a uh, you know I'm an engineer, so it's about like MacGyvering it, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, and it works. And and so and the, the other thing that I've also been able to figure out is that pain is not real. So it's, it's, uh, you know, in my journey with my leg, I'm a, my relationship with physical pain has become something much more fluid. Like I, I, you know, I can, you don't actually remember the feeling of pain. You remember the concept of it, but you don't remember the feeling. So now when I feel pain, I'm, I'm like, ah, you know, like I just it doesn't even hurt anymore right. because I don't really care. Anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't have space. So, uh, so you track it to so, the general. Yeah, so let's go. And uh, and the next thing you know, I'm out there in the jungle looking for these pyramids. And we ended up we ended up finding, you know, pyramids that had never been seen before since the time of the Maya. Oh, that's living amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, I started, I, we started doing more and more of these expeditions as I had been doing before. And I started to feel this responsibility a little bit to continue to, I guess, represent a different narrative because you know i'm on i'm on tv there's there's 167 countries that get national geographic and i remember initially the moments after i lost my leg you know and coming home and looking in the mirror and not knowing how to feel about myself right like hmm. like to feel like like do i still like what what am i what what i you know, like I, I remember like not knowing if I felt sexy or if I felt not and like all these different things. Right. Right. And so like, who am I? Right. And so now I, uh, that doubt, that scary doubt in the beginning, I think is, is largely informed by societal narratives that have been perpetuated and specifically around disabilities as being something of, you know, that like holds you back from being able to be, a you know, some version of a complete self, yes. which is, as you know, Eric, so untrue, right? right. Um, and so 
you know, now that I'm like running around the jungles and climbing mountains and scuba diving, you know, I, I don't make my prosthetic the centerpiece of this, but you know, maybe like on act two, all of a sudden I'll start wearing shorts and everybody's like, Whoa, you know, but I won't even really bring it up because it's sort of like, Hey, it's a part of me. It doesn't define me. It's a great part of me. Uh, but, but what really is inside me is just my curiosity. That's, that's what defines me, my curiosity. Uh, and that, um, and I think that the, the thing that's been very gratifying is hearing from other people that might be sitting in a hospital bed or might be facing a moment where they just become an amputee or something else even and saying that, you know, that it's, it's, it's been rewarding them to see another story, another way in which one could be, uh, you know, that they could embody themselves. And so I'm so grateful that Nat Geo has given me that opportunity because honestly, the same thing happened for me when I was lying in that hospital bed and somebody showed me the picture of a guy, of a guy surfing it changed my life. And so I hope I can do that and pay that, that energy forward. Do you ever find it really interesting, this wild connection between the external and the internal of your life? I mean, so you're like finding hidden sacred places in the jungle using technology to kind of cut through all the external stuff and get to these, the heart of, of these things. And then you're kind of doing that internally or your life forced you to do that internally it's a kind of a beautiful thing. It's like a thematic uh, journey that seems where the two sides sort of fit somehow. Yeah, yeah I never really thought about it. I, I've always felt like I've lived this. Yeah, I did wonder sometimes, like, am I am I coherent or are these like completely different narratives that are <laughs> taken over my life? But yeah, actually, to be honest with you, I think it's all been driven by. A, to just know more intimately what it means to be a human, you know, and, and not just, uh, I think it's, and now it's definitely gotten into this place where it's like, what is the mind and where do we come up with the realities that then become the, the things that we see around us, uh, you know, and, and that we see in ourselves. So I've really, you know, I've really been super lucky and I don't even know how to, how to describe it, but to be able to go to all these places and see all these different versions of our own story in human history. What does it mean to be a human then? Because like we're insanely destructive, we're insanely creative. Um, there's so many facets to us as human beings. You know, I, and, and that's so true. I, I think that this process in one part goes back to that first trip to Mongolia when I met those, those shamans showed up on the side of this mountain, uh, this sacred mountain, and I didn't know they were going to be there. Uh, it took us two days by horse and truck to get there. And then all of a sudden these shamans are there and they beat this drum into the trance. And then they started talking to me and they're, and they're like, they want to judge why we were there. And the shaman says, basically after a whole like two days of sitting with me that that the most important part, and I tried to tell them all about the technology we were using to be non-invasive and all those other things, and nothing got through the translation. And eventually, what he said was, you know, it's just about your intentions. Like, what are your intentions? The reason why I bring that up is that I've, I think what I've learned is that we, we have one superpower, and that superpower is our imagination. Our imagination creates reality. Everything that I look around at, both physical and non-physical, was first imagined in the mind and then turn into reality from a chair to your relationships. Uh, it's, it's really like, that's, 
that's an incredible power. That's almost the being, that's the power of being God. Uh, but it's the intentions that determine our fate, right? So it's, if you know you have that power, if you can realize that power within you, then the real question is what are your intentions? And I think that's very personal to anybody. I mean, that's different for everyone, but that's what makes the world the way it is. Yeah. It's not our imagination. It's our intentions. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. You know, when I think about that, I think about just the, uh, the journey that you've had and this, this incredible journey, not just around the world, but also inside the mind. And I think about so many of our, our listeners and people in our no barriers community that are right in the midst of their struggle. You have had all these life experiences and all this ability to sort of synthesize it together. But for someone like right in the midst of their struggle, is there any word of guidance or guiding thought that you might offer up to that person who's really in that middle of their own hell on earth trying to get to the next step out? And probably feel a bit powerless too, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess my relationship to those moments have been strange in that I, I've always found them sort of romantic. You know, you don't get those moments without the pain, the, the, the truly transformative moments. So if you're paying the dues of suffering, then you're about to reach something that, you know, very few get to reach, which is an insight, if you're open to it, that you're paying for with the suffering. And that insight might be one of the most important things that you'll have in your life. So it's almost like, I know it sounds ridiculous, but like when I when I've been, for example, in love loss, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it hurts, yeah. But it, you also, it's almost slightly, it's almost like slightly like you're like, I know something is changing within me. I'm sort of excited about what's happening in me. I want to, like, you know, I I want to I want to write down what I'm feeling. So my advice would be to to almost face it like an artist would face the moment of despair to create the creativity in you that allows you to realize something in you that you're, you're paying for anyway. So you might as well realize it, right? You're paying for it with the pain. So you might as well, you might as well see the fruit of that pain. Which is, and then Albert ride it like a barrel wave. <laughs> that's the second part. The last part of the advice is Mike, who, who gave me the, the image of himself riding a barrel wave. I had a talk with him. And he said that he was seeing himself inside this barrel wave. He was taking all these selfies with a stick while riding in a barrel, which is ridiculous already. Uh, <laughs> and, and he realized that his his face was contorted in fear. He was like, you know, yeah. which if you've ever served and taken a picture of yourself, it's pretty common to just be like terrified <laughs> at the moment of being like that. Yeah, people describe my kayak face and it's like this, like, I don't want to do <laughs> oh, this for the oh. whole world. I'm just doing <laughs> yeah. it for you two. It's a... It's an open mouth O. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, he said that he made a conscious effort to smile for the photo. And he said as cheesy as it sounds, the minute he started smiling for his own photos, in his mind, like he was choosing to see, he literally forced himself to choose to smile. And I, I don't know that. I'm not trying to be like toxically positive, but that choice of smiling, he said, allowed him to find the flow state within the wave in a way that he didn't realize was there. So you know, I, my advice is basically, you know, find the romance and the pain that allows you to realize the thing, the insight that 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 might show you that that is a lot of times the most powerful thing that you will have in your life. And then the second thing is, is that uh, is that, you know, try to remind yourself to smile uh, and maybe you'll find the flow. 
Albert, thank you so much, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Our, our, our slogan at No Barriers is what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. Hey, it's just true. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You guys nailed it. <laughs> thank you, Albert. So good, Tom. Oh, man. All right. We got to go uh, do some fun adventure together. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, man. Have a great day. No barriers, everyone. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Chonk. That's me. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman. Marketing and graphic support from Stone Lord. And web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. That's nobarrierspodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much, and have a great day. See the rain, it catches up.